Chapter 4 I have already declared that without being pious, I have religion all the same. Say and do what you like. Religion is always religion. Octav Mirbo, The Diary of a Chambermaid, 1900 That teacher of yours with the weird voice called again, Mona announces the following Saturday afternoon. She faces away, stirring macaroni and cheese on the stovetop. The exhaust vent swirls steam upward with a low rumble. It's just her accent, I explain. Don't seem right, Mona sniffs. Never heard of a decent professor who took so much interest in students. You be careful. I dial Dr. Ellsworth back. Hello, she answers. Hi, it's Ross from your Western Civ class. Oh, yes, the young man with such debaucherous taste in literature. Uh, tell me this. Do you have plans tomorrow? I think for a moment. Not really. Excellent. Would you accompany me to Mount Angel Abbey? It is a Benedictine monastery south of Portland. Oh, such a beautiful place. They give regular mass, and the services are a true joy. I promise you a wonderful time and lunch afterward. Say you will come. Well, okay. I write down her address, and early Sunday morning, catch a bus westbound. After only one transfer, the final stop is 39th and Woodstock, mere blocks from Reed College, a private school with beautiful architecture and immaculately landscaped grounds. Three blocks past the campus down Woodstock, I turn left into the East Moreland neighborhood. Perfectly painted Queen Anne, Victorian, and colonial houses are set back from the street. Wire fences ring lush lawns or gardens just beginning their spring bloom. Stately shade trees line the sidewalks. I lift my boots over pavement hillocks, bulging where roots almost break through. Every street tunnels under its own leafy green canopy. After a few minutes, I reach Tolman Street and halt before a half-timbered Tudor revival structure. Much of its steep roof is covered with bulky solar panels. The house is nearly hidden behind large evergreen hedges, forming a dense perimeter around the front yard. Four tall fruit trees, rhododendron bushes, and other plants complement a towering acacia. Two wooden columns flank the inset front porch. I follow a narrow concrete path to the door. Beside it lurks a small, moss-encrusted gnome. Dr. Ellsworth responds promptly to my knock, dressed in a mustard-yellow sweater and purple skirt. Right on time. I'm very impressed. She beams and ushers me inside. A long staircase ascends to the left, and past it I can see an elegantly furnished living room dimly visible in light filtering through tightly drawn curtains. Oil paintings crowd every wall, clocks tick from several directions, and over the front door, suspended by two hooks, hangs a corroded bolt-action rifle. My eyes rove wildly. Well, Ross, Dr. Ellsworth says, it is still early. Perhaps you would enjoy a tour of my library before departing. We descend narrow steps into the basement. A thick scent fills my nostrils, the unmistakable musty odor of books. Halfway down, a metal sign nailed to the angled ceiling reads, Impaired Clearance. Dr. Ellsworth switches on overhead lights, revealing a large cellar filled with cabinets, cobwebbed shelves, and wooden crates. I follow her to a pair of iron-bound oak doors, where she clicks open the massive padlock to release a metal crossbar. She lifts it out of the way, and one side creaks open. Behind this is a second room even bigger than the first. Concrete gives way to rippling hardwoods puckered from long-ago water damage. A gas fireplace burns toward the rear of the chamber, and on either side stretch row upon row of shelves, packed to capacity with books. 
Maps, pamphlets, and bulging folders fill every other available space in massive quantities. Here we have the Northwest and Oregon section, with history, geography, and geology, Dr. Ellsworth begins, gesturing. And to the right is Canadian and Catholic church history. Most of these are French, of course, the language of God, but many in English as well. I do my best to keep an open mind. The word English she pronounces with a long E, making her mouth twist. We move past the fireplace, and she navigates from astronomy, linguistics, anthropology, and ancient civilizations through to the Middle Ages. My section here is mostly 19th and 20th century history, she extends an arm. And from this last shelf to the far side of the room is all novels, some English, but the majority French and Spanish. A plump red sofa resides directly in front of the fireplace, and nearby are two curious wooden benches. Dr. Ellsworth beckons me closer, and to my surprise flips the back of one so it faces the opposite direction. These came from the original streetcar line in Portland, she informs me, eyes shining. Back in the 1890s, operators would reach the end of a route and then turn them over so riders could sit the other way. These are off the old Truman Street line, which used to run in front of my house here. It was only years later Woodstock became the main arterial through this neighborhood. There, look at all the information I give you at no extra cost. I gaze about in awe. Several half-open cupboards reveal more shelves groaning under vinyl LPs and hundreds of videotapes. A wind-up phonograph is nearly concealed by more trunks and boxes. Dr. Ellsworth pauses her commentary and sits down on the sofa. Despite obvious evidence of flooding, I detect no mold or rot. Warm air from the fireplace makes dust motes dance in light shafts from streaked casement windows. Delicately, I brush my fingertips over 19 thick volumes of what looks like a very old series, each labeled by region. Africa, 1 through 4. South America, 1 through 2. Asia, 1 through 4. The list goes on. I pull one free and flip through its pages. Those are very interesting, Dr. Ellsworth observes from her seat. A wonderful ethnogeographic encyclopedia called The Earth and Its Inhabitants by Alice Reclus. Do you know him? Reclus was a French geographer of the highest caliber, besides a notorious anarchist. He supported the Paris Commune in 1871, but managed to survive its destruction and spent the next 20 years writing. No one before succeeded so triumphantly at such a compilation. Reclus covered the entire globe, not only its surface, but local cultures and peoples everywhere. Look at the illustrations and maps. What a masterpiece! She crosses the room and removes another book. A photograph flutters out and lands face down on the floor. My professor bends to pick it up. She grins mischievously, then folds the photo in half. It disappears into the front pocket of her yellow sweater. Be careful as you read these. I occasionally forget curiosities which are not suitable for the general public. I blanch and turn away, thankfully distracted as my eyes travel from histories of the Huguenot and Fanian movements to writings by Disraeli and Clauschwitz, before an extensive World War II banquet unfolds. Joseph Goebbels' diaries, memoirs of George F. Kennan, General Kesselring's autobiography, and a 1938 edition of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Curiosity whetted, I delve further into this section, which stretches on behind a large armchair. Dr. Ellsworth clears her throat. 
You know, Ross, I really must suggest we start our day trip. Fortunately for my nerves, she allows me to drive, and we head south on Interstate 5 to Mount Angel Abbey. About half an hour later, I motor her Toyota up a moderately sized hill with 14 small chapels spaced 30 or so yards apart from bottom to summit. A loud bell tolls as I park. Oh, please, go along without me, Dr. Ellsworth urges. I'm sorry, I am dreadfully cold and must warm up in the office. She points at the main structure and breaks off toward a smaller outbuilding, her movements unsteady. Suddenly alone, I enter the elegant sanctuary. Painted biblical scenes festoon every wall, and statues of saints retire in alcoves along the perimeter. Arranged to form a horizontal cross, austere wooden pews fill the interior. I select a spot toward the rear. Only three others sit ahead of me, all older men with shiny pates and thinning white hair. Then, as the bell's final ring echoes, two middle-aged women enter. They bow toward the altar and settle down on my left. Moments later, about a dozen black cassocked monks file in slowly from a side entrance. They take seats along the forward benches. A long silence ensues. Then, abruptly all stand, facing us in two rows, clear voices alternating Latin with English. The notes rise and fall in graceful solemnity. After twenty-five minutes, they finish, and shuffle quietly out of the sanctuary, bowing to one another as each circles past. The left row is three monks longer than the right, and these extras bend forward together in a salute to emptiness before they exit. I leave as well, and discover my professor in the nearby building's lobby, absorbed by a magazine with Pope John Paul II on its cover. You missed the whole show, I observe. It is a lovely space, but so drafty, she explains, shaking her head. And I get abominable chills these days, but I hope this experience has done wonders for your spiritual well-being, she laughs. We shall return, and I will prepare a delicious lunch. You know, I am a very well-regarded cook. After driving back to her house, she leads me into the sunlit kitchen. Orange enameled pots and pans hang from hooks around the room. 1950s red-marbled formica tops each counter and matches a small table in the rear breakfast nook. This half of the chamber is decorated in wallpaper, featuring tiny tattooed sailors, whimsical tall ships, and water-spouting whales, seemingly intended for a child's bedroom. Beside the sink is a round wooden board covered by a thick glass bell. Underneath lies something triangular, draped with black speckled skin. Dr. Ellsworth gestures at this. Would you like some cheese? I wrinkle my nose. No thanks, I don't eat cheese. Oh, what a tragedy! You could scarcely find better. It is aged to perfection. In France, we kept our cheese this way until a special variety of little red worm dwelled there. A metal contraption sits beside the oven. It resembles an old-fashioned chrome refrigerator, but narrower, with a recessed lid. What's that, I ask? My calcinator, Dr. Ellsworth declares proudly. The most modern way to dispose of rubbish. Or oh, it was fifty years ago. You open the top and incinerate anything burnable inside. Oh, uh, that reminds me. She removes the folded photograph from her pocket, and after striking a wooden match, ignites one edge. I catch a brief glimpse. Naked figures? Her foot presses on a pedal at the bottom of the device, and its lid flips open. Fingers tremble as the paper bubbles and smokes in her hand. She drops it inside, steps away, and the top snaps shut. Ashes collect below. It's a great convenience, but please sit down. 
She puts her palm against the wall to steady herself. I am sorry, Ross. I really don't feel well and must rest. There is leftover chicken fricassee in the refrigerator you may heat up, but I'm afraid I can't join you. Thank you for a lovely afternoon. Please let yourself out when you have finished. She turns and leaves. I hear leaden footsteps mount the staircase. Sunlight floods through tall windows and I gaze out into a small grassy backyard. Grapevines twist around a high wooden fence along one side, while finches chirp and fluff brown feathers on the rim of a concrete birdbath. Across the face of a pedestal-mounted sundial, Roman numerals direct afternoon shadows. After consuming the final delicious mouthful of stew, I wash my dish in the sink and set it to dry on a wire rack. The house is still, only clocks ticking from the other room disturb it. On my way out, I pause and examine a framed photograph by the entryway. It shows a cheerful Dr. Ellsworth, much younger, engulfed in a Christmas Santa costume. Her buoyant round face makes me smile as well. I shut the front door, firmly behind. On Monday, I arrive in Western civilization before any other students. My professor sits up front, countenance impassive, then beckons. I come forward. Ross, she asks, plainly, I would like you to come live with me. What? I stumble, trying to think. That's so kind, but I really can't just move out and abandon my roommate. As I speak, the echo of Mona's fingernails scraping across our bathroom door fills my ears. Absolutely, I say. 